Hello? Hi, I'm calling for Terry Bisson. Who's calling? This is Jonathan Mitchell. Hold on. Jonathan Mitchell? Oh, yes, this thing. Good morning. Today on The Truth, we'll be playing a piece that I produced for Studio 360 in November of 2011. It's a short story by Terry Bisson called They're Made Out of Meat. The story first appeared in Omni Magazine in 1991, and it's been interpreted many different ways. It's written as just a dialogue between two characters. There's no character names. There's no additional uh, indications about what's going on. It's just the dialogue. I mean, it's basically radio. That's how They're Made Out of Meat always worked best for me was uh, radio drama. That's Terry Bisson. And after the story, we're going to have an interview with Terry. He'll talk about what inspired the story, and we'll also talk about his new novel, Any Day Now. And we'll get his thoughts on meat. That's all ahead. Stick around. And so now, here we go. This is They're Made Out of Meat. They're made out of meat. Meat? Meat. They're made out of meat. Meat. There's no doubt about it. We picked several from different parts of the planet, took them aboard our recon vessels, probed them all the way through. They're completely meat. That's impossible. What about the radio signals? They use radio waves to talk, but the signals don't come from them. The signals come from machines. So, who made the machines? That's who we want to contact. They made the machines. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Meat made the machines. You're asking me to believe in sentient meat. I'm not asking you. I'm telling you. These creatures are the only sentient race in this sector, and they're made out of meat. Okay, maybe they're like the Orphali. You know, a carbon-based intelligence no. that goes through a meat stage. No, they're, they're born meat, and they die meat. We studied them for several of their lifespans, which didn't take too long. <laughs> We all know the lifespan of meat. Ugh. Maybe they're like the the Wedelite, a meathead with an electron plasma brain inside. No, we, we thought of that. They're meat all the way through. No brain. Oh, there's a brain. There's a brain, all right. It, it's just that the brain is made out of meat. So, what does the thinking? You're not understanding. I, the, the brain does the thinking. The meat. You're asking me to believe in thinking meat. Yes, thinking meat. Conscious meat, loving meat, dreaming meat. The, the meat is the whole deal. Are you getting the picture? They're made out of meat? And they've been trying to get in touch with us for almost a hundred of their years. So what does the meat have in mind? First it wants to talk to us. Then I imagine it wants to explore the universe, contact other sentients, swap ideas and information, the usual. We're supposed to talk to meat. That's the idea. That's the message they're sending out by radio. Hello, anyone there? Anyone home? That sort of thing. They actually talk, then? They use words and ideas and concepts? Oh, yes. Except they, they do it with meat. I thought you just told me they use radio. They do, but, but what do you think is on the radio? Meat sounds. Y you know how when you slap or flap meat, it makes a noise? They, they talk by flapping their meat at each other. They can even sing by squirting air through their meat. This is too much. What do you advise? Officially, you're 
on officially? Both. Uh, officially, we're required to contact, welcome, and log in any and all sentient races or multi-beings in the quadrant without prejudice, fear, or favor. Unofficially, I would advise that we erase the records and forget the whole thing. I was hoping you would say that. It seems harsh, but there's a limit. Okay, how many planets are we dealing with here? Just one. They can travel to other planets in special meat containers, but they can't live on them. And being meat, they only travel through sea space, which limits them to the speed of light and makes the possibility of their ever making contact pretty slim. Infinitesimal, in fact. So we just pretend there's no one home in the universe? That's it. Okay, and the ones who've been aboard our vessels, the ones you've probed, you're sure they won't remember? They'll be considered crackpots if they do. We went into their heads and smoothed out their meat, so we're just a dream to them. A dream to meat. How strangely appropriate that we should be meat's dream. And we can mark this sector unoccupied. Okay, agreed. Officially and unofficially, case closed. Any others? Anyone interesting on that side of the galaxy? Yes, uh, a rather shy but sweet hydrogen core cluster intelligence in a class 9 star in G445 zone. Uh, it was in contact two galactic rotations ago. Wants to be friendly again. They always come around. Why not? Imagine how unbearably, how unutterably cold the universe would be if one were all alone. They're Made Out of Meat, performed by Russ Armstrong and Miriam Tolan. I originally produced that for Studio 360 in November of 2011, and it was written in 1991 by Terry Bisson, who's on the phone with me now. Hello, Terry. Good morning. So, are you a vegetarian? No. No. (laughs) And I'm myself made out of meat. Uh (laughs) So, um, that first appeared in Omni Magazine, is that right? Yes, back in 90 or 91, something like that. What inspired it? I was thinking about an interview I'd read or heard with uh, that Allen Ginsberg was doing with some journalist, and uh, and he was talking about they were talking about poetry, and and the guy was saying, well, it's like we're two poets talking or something like that, and and Ginsberg said, no, we should remember this is we're just meat talking to meat. And uh, somehow that stuck in my head, and um, and that that was sort of the origin of it. What did that suggest to you that we were meat talking to meat? It suggested, you know, Ginsburg was just kind of cutting through layers of uh, of culture, history, and nuance just to get down to the bottom of it. So I thought that was kind of clever. So then I, you know, and in another sense, it's a reversal of one of the oldest tropes in science fiction, which is called the first contact story. Our first contact with another intelligent communicative um, species or being or creature, what will that be like? And so um, the Made Out of Meat uh, is actually just a reversal of that. It's from the point of view of the other instead of from our point of view. Yeah. Right. I, I read it as sort of like a, a satire of bureaucracy, sort of like it's, um, if I were to make an analogy, I would say it's like city officials who don't want to deal with a particular section of town. Yeah, well, that's that's sort of in there. I mean, that, yeah, anytime you write, yeah, yeah, that that's in there, too. Yeah. Is that something you were thinking about, or is that... 
just sort of a byproduct of it's a bad product i mean anytime you're writing about a you know uh, i mean it was an exchange between two sort of uh, military or bureaucratic officials so you sort of fall into i think any any writer everybody sort of falls into that uh, sort of semi satirical mode so no, that wasn't one of the purposes of it it was uh, but that's the way you know people in the military or at the dmv or whatever tend to communicate Right. Yeah. You know, you wrote it in a very open-ended way. It's just dialogue, and there's no explanation. There's no character names. Yeah. And so it's very open to interpretation. I was sort of playing with the idea at the time. I wrote a number of short stories, extremely short stories that were all dialogue. And it was sort of uh, an interesting formal structure to deal with. You know, you you can't write a very long story that's all dialogue. I think about a thousand words is about as far as you can go. So I was uh, just playing with that form also. Yeah, I've seen at least uh, three different film versions of it. And I I mean, there's lots of of audio versions. There's all kinds of audio versions online, but um, they're all different. They all seem to take a different interpretation of it. Like the one's in a diner, one's on a subway platform, and others in an office. Yeah. How do you feel about the ways that's been interpreted? Well, like I say, they're all over the lot. The best way to do it, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, like the diner thing. Well, that was real cute. There was a guy named Stephen O'Regan in Ireland who did that, and he won a uh, first place at a, a short film contest with it. And I thought it was very well done, but it doesn't make any sense. I mean, the guys who are saying they're made out of meat are themselves made out of meat. So once you show a visual, you know, of a of a human being saying this, it doesn't really make any sense. Um, because what would be a star? Well, you know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Uh, the, if somebody's speaking it, you know, they're by squirting air through their meat. Then uh, what's what's so what's so weird about it? On the and then a lot of people do it as uh, robots. Well, that sort of makes sense. It always uh, I think the first time it was ever done on stage was in New York at um, the uh, the West Bank, which is a theater on Forty Second Street. It was part of a whole series of science fiction plays. And the way it worked best was have two actors on stage. They're behind the screen, and uh, maybe there's uh, two lights, uh, like laser lights, bobbing around on the screen. So you get the sense that the discussion is being had between two intelligences that are not biological. You know, so then it makes a little more sense. Right. But you know, it doesn't have to make that much sense for the humor to come through. Why do you think it's been interpreted so often? What what do you attribute that to? I I don't know. I I would be able to say that I don't know. Maybe it's just it's funny, it's short, and it uh, it makes you think. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, it gets used a lot in um, uh, psychology and uh, t- uh, like uh, Steven Pinker, his book uh, How the Mind Works uh, used used it in there. You know, people who are uh, scientists and um, educators who are dealing with psychology like to use it because it kind of jolts people into realize what an amazing thing that is. How can consciousness emerge from a, a pile of meat that looks like a pound of hamburger? Yeah. Uh, so, so you've written novels and screenplays, and you've also you said you're most comfortable with writing short stories. Well. Yeah, I was for, um, you know, I haven't, I've been working for the past three or four years on a novel, which just came out, um, 
and I haven't written too many short stories lately, but that was my most success in science fiction was um, short stories. Um, and I've written four collections of short stories. And the new novel you mentioned is called Any Day Now? Yes. And could you tell us a little bit about it? Well, it's a novel um, sort of about the 60s. It's a coming-of-age novel. It's sort of loosely based on the outlines of my life or the life of a lot of other people my age, which is, um, you know, so let's say between 60 and 70, who grew up in the 50s and then went through the 60s and were involved in the civil rights, the anti-war movement, the hippie movement, the counterculture, and all that kind of stuff. So it takes all that material, which gets used a lot, and then I added, um, in science fiction, there's a a sort of a structure, an idea called the alternate history, where you write about what if things had turned out differently. You know, what if the South had won the Civil War? What if Germany had uh, conquered England in World War II? That kind of thing. So I took sort of familiar territory, you know, rock and roll and drugs and the counterculture and the anti-war movement and stuff, and sort of put them in a different context where the world was not exactly the same. Where where exactly does history diverge in your version? Uh, well, there there's a um, let's say there's a contested presidential election and a um, civil war in the U.S. And, and what did making that change offer you as a writer? Well, I would have sorry, what you call the boomer generation, but in a world that uh, was, you know, basically the boomers went. We went through these enormous changes in the uh, in the U.S. in the '60s, and you know, some good and some bad, and then it it all kind of shut down. You know, you had Nixon, you had Reagan, you had you know, and everything kind of went back to where it is now. Well, what if that didn't happen? What if things continued to get wilder and wilder as it looked like they were doing at the time, and they did for a time? What if that had continued? Where right. where would we go? Do you have a preference one way or the other? I mean, do you wish they had gone that way? Or Yeah. Yeah, it's a utopian novel in that sense. Um, let me see if I have any other questions. Is there anything I haven't asked you so far that you think is important um, to talk about? I was interested in talking to you about radio. Are you producing? You know, I love writing for radio. I had written a, um, like I say, Made Out of Meat is basically a radio play. And I thought that there would be a revival of fiction and theater on on the radio. And I've been very disappointed that it hasn't kind of worked out that way. Well, that's what I'd like to see, too. I I feel the same way. I think that there's a a lot of real potential there, you know, because radio is so good at telling stories. I always thought so, too. And what's generally successful on public radio is storytelling. Right now, it just happens to be more like reality-based storytelling. But um, I think uh, there's a couple things going on there. One is that um, podcasting has opened up a lot of avenues for people to get their material out there. And so what we've seen in the past maybe three or four years has been a real boom of of radio drama being produced for podcasts. Uh huh. Well, where would you find that? Uh, you can go on iTunes or um, and, and just do a search for radio drama. Huh. Well, that because there was a period of time back in the, um, um, I would say ten or fifteen years ago when I actually did some commercial radio for it was a thing called Seeing Ear Theater, which uh-huh. the Sci-Fi Channel owned. 
Um, but I was, you know, it seemed to me that it had kind of devolved. Where the the most of radio I hear, I hear now is that sort of Garrison Keillor, right. where instead of instead of actually using radio, uh, you're sort of imitating and satirizing the the old stuff. Yeah, it's and treating it, it as though it's a museum piece or something. You know? Yeah, yeah, and and there's so much you could do with modern radio where it wasn't a joke. You know, where you yeah, yeah, you know, it would be wonderful. And totally. That, and maybe that's what you're doing. I'll check out your podcast. Yeah, that's definitely what, that's my goal is to do things that are really contemporary yeah. in a way that maybe puts it on a level that's equal to film and television where I believe it belongs. Yeah, I do too, because you can, you know, with sound and without the visuals, you have, it opens it up in a way. There's a lot yeah. of stuff you can do, you know. Right. But look, I'll look at your stuff for sure. Tell me again now, now what, um, you got me here on the couch without a paper, but I want to... All right, I'm going to look at... Um, your your site is what? It's The Truth, A-P-M. The Truth. T-H-E-T-R-U-T-H, A-P-M dot com. You can also follow us on Twitter at The Truth A-P-M. Like us on Facebook and also subscribe on iTunes and write us a review. Uh, it's the best way to support us is to get the word out. So tell everyone you know. Special thanks this week to David Krasnow and Derek Johns at Studio 360. Thanks also to Russ Armstrong and Miriam Tolan. And a very special thanks to Terry Bisson. It was nice talking to you today. Okay. Thanks a lot. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm Jonathan Mitchell, and you have been hearing... The Truth. Radiotopia. Radiotopia.